Good morning, Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and the very first chapter and the very first verse. It is wonderful, wonderful, amazing to be together um, as we were singing that song, all of our focus um, on the Lord. I welcome you, I greet you, and it is a great privilege um, to stand before you with God's word open and that we can sing and we can praise and we can uh, preach loudly and we can study God's word together. I don't know if you picked up or not, but in your bulletin, there's a little insert. And if I could just very, very quickly direct you to that insert, there's um, a card. Um, what I want to remind you is that today is a day unlike other days that we meet as a church. Uh, this, this day is set apart to remember specifically uh, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ um, who are suffering persecution. Um, on that little insert, there is a map of the world, and you'll notice the colors in dark blue are restricted. Um, you are not allowed to openly walk down the street with a Bible. Think about that. You cannot openly share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The dark gray is a hostile region. And you'll very quickly notice that that's what, that is the majority of the world's population that are in places that do not have the privilege that we do. What is also amazing as we commit now to pray for them is that, do you realize that in those areas where the blue is dark and the gray is dark, the church is exploding in growth? That, that, that there are thousands upon thousands of people that are coming to know the Lord because it's hard to follow Jesus. Whereas my concern, and even as we launch into this study in the Gospel of Mark, my concern is that it has become very easy for us to follow Christ right here. A lot of you this past week have spent more time in planning for fantasy football than you have reading the Word of God. A lot of us have probably focused more on Royals and Mets than in our own personal quiet time. A lot of us have, in a sense, focused more on our exercise routines or our diets or our responsibilities at work than we have pausing and praising, acknowledging the one who gave you the ability to exercise or to work. We, we have to be reminded of what God has given to us. We have to be reminded to pray for those, not only those that are suffering, but those who are causing the suffering. Not just those that are persecuted, but those who are doing the persecution. That is our responsibility we have as we hold on to this amazing truth, the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads, please, and pray with me as we lift up many who are suffering in the world around us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you and we are, we are most humbled and we are most grateful for your amazing graces, your mercies that shower upon us every day, the freedoms that we enjoy. And yet, Father, there are so many in this world who, who do not have that. And I lift up right now, we together as one body of believers here at Big Woods Bible Church Unite our hearts together 
and asking that you would give strength and peace and comfort to those who are suffering. Father, my heart also goes to those people that are causing the harm and the hurts and the ache. Lord, they are blinded, many of them controlled by the evil one. And God, I would ask that you would free them and that they would see and hear through the testimonies of faithful followers of Jesus the truth and that they would follow you and offer their entire lives to you. For you've called us to live in a unique time, in a unique place. We have great responsibilities with the blessings that we have been given. And God, I would ask that your Holy Spirit would awaken us now to see what is at hand, what is happening around us. Father, we plead and we pray right now for your Spirit to be unleashed in this room and in our lives and in our hearts. Please, God, please guard my mouth and my lips. May we understand what, what it is that you've called us to do, who it is you've called us to be. And we praise you, Lord, for loving us when we are most unlovable. Father, we lift up the name of Jesus and we ask, Lord, that we would hear and see you. We ask this in the precious and powerful name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Um, I am really excited about, I don't know how long uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. We'll probably take a break. You know, there's a holiday called Christmas coming up, and so we'll probably pause on that. But we're going to spend probably, I I would think, the next uh, bulk of the year in the Gospel of Mark. And so our text this morning is chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And let me just set the stage a little bit for you. I want you to think of where we are at right now as a church. You hear a lot about the vision that God has given to us, Vision 2020. Uh, And it has, thankfully, by God's grace, gained some traction in our community. And many of you, praise God, are building relationships um, with people in our community so that God is glorified and, and lives are literally transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was a vision that poured out a time that the elders and, and I had together. And what we have to understand is that that's the vision we've set for the immediate future over the next couple years. But, but do you realize that visions can change? What does not change is the fact that a vision is always rooted in a mission. And the mission that we have as a church is very simple. To love God... And love people. It is thoroughly biblical, is saturated with what? Clear root in the gospel. Um, what we understand here is we dive into this, this, this gospel, it's going to teach us how to do that, how to fulfill the mission that God has called us to do. Um, in this study, you will see and you will hear Jesus. It is a straight short line pointing directly to Jesus, primarily zoning in on his, his ministry, his message, and his mission. And we'll see with this that there is a theme that kind of uh, covers all of the Gospel of Mark, and is the fact that Jesus is a servant. Therefore, the Gospel of Mark is going to call you and I, and you have to kind of wiggle yourself, get comfortable in your seat for this, that, that the Gospel of Mark is going to call us to have a similar posture of humility, 
a posture of sacrifice in our own lives so that we too learn how to serve others and serve God. The way that Jesus Christ shows us in the Gospel. Now you can be assured that, that this book moves rather swiftly. Although we're going to take a slow pace through it, the, 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 the tense is somewhat um, uh, quick. 36 times you will read this word immediately. Jesus gets to work, just like you and I. Okay. What's interesting, though, is that he's not racing and rushing from place to place. Instead, he goes with a sense of urgency. He goes with a sense of immediacy that the mission that he is on, the message that he has is important. Um, There's no, what I call, as I was writing, there's no snooze button here. I hate the snooze button. It's like just prolonged torture. Who came up with that idea where we know what's coming. We know we've got to get out from under the warm covers. And so we hit that thing. We, We do not have the freedom, the privilege, the ability to hit the snooze button when it comes to the gospel of Mark. Let me, let me give you this setting here. You, you probably understand there's, and you're like, why are we starting in Mark? There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four Gospels. All of them speak about the person, the work, the ministry of the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, the Savior of the world. Now what's interesting is that Matthew presents Jesus as King. Mark presents Jesus as servant. Luke presents Jesus as a man. And John presents Jesus as God. And we're going to focus, as I said, on the fact that Jesus is a servant. Why? Because I believe that we, you and I, need to learn this truth. Mark is the shortest of all of the books. It's probably the oldest, the first gospel that was written uh, in the mid to late 50s. It's a collection of snapshots from the life of Jesus. And the author... Mark, or perhaps you have heard of him before as John Mark. Back in Acts, we we did a study in Acts a couple years ago. You might remember this individual whose name was John Mark. And he was a close friend uh, and follower of the Apostle Peter. And so what the Gospel of Mark is, is actually the story, first-hand eyewitness of the Apostle Peter that has been told to Mark, John Mark, and he writes it down. That's what the Gospel of Mark is. That's somewhat the genesis of it. Now, if you recall just a little bit, and we can be hard on this guy, John Mark. I have been. If you remember a little bit about this individual, he was commissioned for ministry with Paul and Barnabas in in Acts chapter 13 in Jerusalem, and they head out. It's very clear as far as the direction they're going. They sail to Cyprus. They get to the port of Salamis. They trek all the way through the island of, of Patphys. And then it says this in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. And I'm going to share this because it gives us a little bit of a, a view inside the author, the ones who's penning these words. There's this statement. Paul and his companions, companions set sail from Patphys and came to Perga. And John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Some translations actually use the word John Mark abandoned them deserted them, and we would say, like, come on, man, there's a job to do. You left your wingman. You don't ever leave your wingman. And so we are tough on John Mark, no doubts. At some level, although he was commissioned by the Holy Spirit, he's struggling with the ministry that God has called him to do. Do do you? 
ever struggle with the ministry that God has called you to do? Okay. I do. And, and whether or not it was well, because they're focusing on the Gentiles and, and, and John Mark was a Jew and he's really struggling, don't you at times struggle with the fact that you're to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people that you would rather not even hang around? Isn't that, isn't that how? Yet God has called us to offer something to someone who's in desperate need and we're like, yeah, but I don't like you. You're a Mets fan. That's really, that's how we oftentimes make the line of delineation of who we connect and who we don't connect with. Rather than being so hard on John Mark, ask yourself, have you ever gone the other direction? Somewhat of a New Testament Jonah is what we've got. Ultimately, we know and praise God that as the story continues, there is a, a, a reunion 2 Timothy 4 happily suggests that he got over his problem with ministry, particularly to the Gentiles, that the Apostle Paul got over his problem with John Mark and that they labored together at some levels. So understand, when, when we read who's writing, you've got to know it's just like you and I. He connects and he feels, he hurts, he gets tired, he gets frustrated, just like you and I. And he records a story that we need to hear. Mark takes his pen and he records the Apostle Peter's first-hand account of Jesus. Jesus as a servant, modeling for us how to love, how to adore, and obey God, first and foremost. And yet Jesus also models for us how to love, how to serve, and offer hope to other people. Okay, here it is. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8 for our text this morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The theme of this uh, book, very quickly, is revealed in in verse 1 of chapter 1. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, it's interesting to note, and, and we will go back and forth through various 
um, comparisons in contrast to the other Gospels. But it's interesting to note, unlike John, the Gospel of John, there's really not a lot of long, drawn-out, detailed descriptions or explanations of doctrine um, or even a theological foundation that exists in, in the Gospel of, of Mark. It's not like that. And unlike Matthew and Luke, which usually begin with the story of Jesus, what, there, there's no angel singing here. There's no shepherds. There's no manger, nativity scene. There's no record of his birth. There's no record of his childhood, early life. There's not even a sense of genealogy the way that it exists in some of the other Gospels. There's no background whatsoever. There's no cultural context that is set. What happens here is what? Mark just, it's like a bright light. He bursts on the scene with the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, since it begins with what? This individual, John the Baptist, that's where we'll begin as it reveals the gospel, first and foremost, in the fulfillment of prophecies. Point number one, the mission was perfectly planned. Who wants to go out of the door? you got a job to do, but you don't really know what you're doing. You don't really know how to do it. That's just, that's just a cause for confusion. In this context, the mission was perfectly planned. The entire gospel begins with an Old Testament quote. It, it gives credit to Isaiah. It actually comes of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, who's clearly the most well-known of all the prophets. But what's interesting is that it actually includes another line from the prophet, the minor prophet, Malachi in chapter 3, verse 1. But, but what is important that's, that's to note here is that the Messiah, the one who, who, who redeems and saves and rescues us, was to have a messenger. That was a plan. It says very specifically, according to the prophecy, that there was to be a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way. You're like, okay, I know I've got an extra hour of sleep. I am sharper than usual. But why? What, like, what does this really, what is the significance of this? What's the big deal that there is a messenger before the Messiah? The answer is simple. The accuracy, the credibility, and the validity of all Scripture fitting together absolutely perfectly. In addition to the fact that before someone comes, if there is one whose job is intent to run, want, run, kind of point ahead of them, announcing, it gives credibility to the one who's coming. Does that make sense? Years ago, ancient world, when the king was going to come into a particular town or village. They were going to come to, to bring blessings or gifts for their subjects or rulings or whatever it is. There was always someone who would come before the king that would say what? Little hint. The king is coming. Get ready. Clean up your house. He might want to stop in to see you. Um, be prepared for this. My, my, I want to say my little niece, but my little niece, one of my nieces, they're, they're, they're growing up. They're all, my whole families are getting older and they're getting married and having babies. And my, my niece, Courtney, and her husband, um, Joshua, uh, last week had a reveal party. This is what young couples do nowadays. I had no idea what it was. I'd look it up in the, in, in the dictionary. A reveal party. They know that the little baby that Courtney's carrying, okay, 
they just found out it's going to be a boy or a girl, but, but no one else knows. And so you bring everyone together and you have a big bonfire and you put the sparklers in. And if the sparkler turns blue, then it's a boy. If the sparkler turns pink, then it's a girl. And I've done all this work and like marshmallows and everything. And, and guess what? Guess what was announced? That Elias Michael will be here as part of our family in February. The announcement's been made. Elias Michael's on his way. That's a big deal. Yet one more blessing, one more gift. How much more important is it of an announcement to say, the Messiah, the only hope that you and I have got, he's coming. He's coming, and John the Baptist makes a big deal and shouts loud about that. This goes all the way back. This goes all the way back from the very beginning, the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, and God offers what? God offers hope that says there is one that's coming, and he will crush the head of the serpent. As dark as it seems, as lonely as cold, as desperate, as ensnared as you may be in sin, there is one that is coming. Therefore, the Gospel of Mark begins with a prophecy and a plan that a messenger would precede the Messiah. The messenger is John the Baptist. And he makes an announcement. And what he does here is, in a very unique way, he draws the crowds. He gets everyone's attention. He makes the introduction. He makes the connection. And then what's interesting is that he just, he just fades away. He just disappears. 650 years before this time, Isaiah and Malachi say, there's going to be one. There's going to be one. Get ready. There's going to be one who comes to prepare, for, prepare the way for the one. Is what's saying. Unlike, unlike anyone else, Jesus, there wasn't a search committee that was formed. There were no resumes that needed to be submitted. There were no references that needed to be checked or called. He is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. And God, what? He wrapped his final and his best message for all of humanity in the person of his own Son, the Son of God Himself, was coming. The mission was perfectly planned. Secondly, the messenger was incredibly rough. I love this guy. As we introduce this gospel, you'll quickly notice, okay, this is not a, how do we say it? I don't even know what the term would be in in marketing. Um, It's not a soft sell approach. Okay, he's not, he's not trying to win friends and influence people here. Uh, sorry, Dale Carnegie. It's, it's not really a, a message, and the messenger is not designed in any way. There's no intent to be polite here. He's not trying to be palatable or gentle or, or even make it easy in any way. It is truth. It is hard, strong truth. And it, it is presented in what seems intentionally rough and rugged way, both in its contents, 
but also in its presentation. First, listen to the message itself. Listen to what John is proclaiming. Listen to the the content of the message. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist prepares the way by calling people to repentance, calling them to turn away from their sin and turn to God. Now, what's interesting here is that repentance had to precede baptism. Thus, baptism was not the means by which a person was forgiven. It was a sign indicating what? That they were sincere in their repentance. This elevates the position of baptism that says, how is anyone supposed to know? How is anyone supposed to know you're following Jesus if you've repented from your sins, if you've not been baptized? It's clear. Now, is baptism going to get you? No, it's a result of. It's showing others. It's taking a stand. It's, it's displaying obedience. You can be assured that repentance, repentance, not baptism, is completely necessary for salvation. Repentance. There cannot be salvation. You cannot be saved from your sins unless you turn from them. And you and I know this is, this is not easy for us. This is not fun. But it is, it is well worth it. My, my good friend had surgery this week. And, and think about the idea of surgery. He, he goes in and a doctor, a surgeon, takes a razor-sharp scalpel and cuts deep into the hands. There, there will be blood. There will be pain. Okay, there, there will be hard work. There will be therapy. There's going to be great sacrifice what, in order to restore, to return to full health and full strength. And yet it's something that's so hard and so unpleasant. If, if you go to the Gospel of, of Luke in chapter 3, it actually adds a little bit more color. To, to what is happening here. John, John the Baptist, again, Luke adds more detail. In, in chapter 3, verse 7, when he preaches, it says to the crowd, he says, you brood of vipers. Well, there's a good way to warm up the crowds. You bunch of snakes, slithering and sneaking. That, that's, that's how he starts. Not really what we would call today in our, in our culture, we have to have a seeker-sensitive approach. Present truth, but don't not. Truth is going to hurt. Strong language, you bunch of snakes. That's what John says. But understand this people are not going to cry out for mercy unless they know that they are in need of mercy. Does that make sense? They're not going to cry out, I need God's mercy, unless they first understand there is a desperate need for it. And so that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's creating. And he, you don't ask for directions unless you're actually lost. You ever been driving? Roll down the window. Hi, how are you? Do you need directions? No, I know exactly where I am. Well, that just is, like, that's creepy. You, 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 you don't do those things. In the sense of a blind person doesn't go shopping for sunglasses because it, it doesn't, it's not necessary. 
a, a beggar is not saying, I would really like to have a pair of designer jeans or a new diamond ring. No, they need food. Sick people pray that, that they would be healed. That, that's what is happening here. The messenger, John the Baptist, speaks of the greatest need for mankind. What is that? It is a healthy and a holy fear of God. Do you realize that one day you will face, you will meet Him? Do you realize that that is what is desperately lacking? Even in our own world today, a, a healthy fear of God's. Now, if you were to continue on with some of the pictures that Luke creates, there's a, a, a greater sense of urgency down in verse 9 of Luke chapter 3. It says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's an image of what? There's a tree that needs to be cut down. You, you go, you, you find your axe, you sharpen your axe, and you get ready and, and to make sure you know where you're going to strike. You, always, you put it on the target. And then, and then you go after it. That's, that's exactly what is happening. The axe is right there. It's being laid on the target. And look at what happens here. It says, the tree that does not bear good fruits. It says it is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's not a lot of ways to misinterpret that. Continuing on in, in, in Luke, in chapter 3, John the Baptist uses three different pictures or, or points. And I'll just go through them very, very quickly. He says in verses 10 and 11, to, to the crowd, to the people that are present, he says, if you have two tunics, share with someone who has none. What, what, what he's saying here is what every one of us need to learn that what rather than hoarding and holding for ourselves, we're called to share what we have. Who creates more pictures? He speaks to the tax collectors in verses 12 and 13. Collect no more than you are allowed. Basically what you need to stop stealing from other people. He talks to the soldiers. He says what in verse 14? Don't extort money any longer. Stop threatening and falsely accusing people. You need to stop abusing. Every one of these are what? You're doing this. You need to change and do this. You're involved in this. You've got to repent from that and do this. The whole message is one of repentance and change. So as you begin to hear this, the Holy Spirit begins to use this message for you. Where, where are you? You presently. What do you, what do you need to turn from, repent from? Are you lying? Are you involved in living a lie in some way? You don't want someone to see. Don't, don't look at... It's your phone. Don't look at your histories on your computer. You're living a lie. Stop lying. Repent from that. Turn from that. Are you, are you cheating? Are you stealing in some way? You don't want anyone to see. You're kind of just skimming a little bit off the top for you. You need to stop doing that. You repent from that. Are you, are you, are you coveting? Are you lusting after? There's deep, it's in there, and you just desire, you hunger for this, and you feed that in those private moments. There's a message that says there's one's coming, you're going to meet him. 
You have to prepare for that. The way that you prepare is turn from that. You can't do that any longer. Why? Because the axe is laid at the roots of the tree. It's that urgent. John's message is all about change. John's message is all about repentance. And doing that, what does he do? He bridges the gap. He closes the gap between the old and the new, between grace and law. There's no doubt that radical change, hard change, is hard to do. The founder of of the Salvation Army, William Booth, uh, spoke uh, more than 100 years ago, spoke quite prophetically. Forward thinking, he says this, he says, the chief danger of the 20th century, remember, that's already in the past. Booth says the, chief, the biggest danger of the 20th century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Well, well that's, that's really, really accurate. Everyone here wants to go to heaven. Everyone here wants to be saved. Everyone wants the joy and the comfort and the blessing and the peace and the warmth of being with a holy, loving God. But nobody wants to obey Him right now here on earth. Nobody wants that. And so there's a major problem that exists. it's It's a rough, strong message. Secondly, look at the messenger. John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, we know that this is first century Middle Eastern culture, and they dress totally different than we would today. What's interesting is that John Mark is making clear note that even John the Baptist dressed differently than everyone else in his day. He is, he is... He is wild in every sense of the word. And, and yet he's, he's wild and holy. He is bold and, and brash. He is loud and, and he is clear. And it's very, very obvious, let alone to listen to the message, it's obvious by looking at him, he just doesn't fit. And, and I, thought about, I thought about us. I thought about me. How... How hard we try to fit. How much effort we put in to make sure, okay, we might be a little bit different. Okay, everyone has their own self-identity or whatever it is, but we don't want to be too far out there. We don't want to be a freak. I I actually, I can't believe I'm quoting it. It goes all the way back, and a lot of you kids are too young for this. Actually, Toby Mack and, and, and DC Talk were kind of right with the whole Jesus freak thing. They actually were. What will people think when they, they know that I'm a Jesus freak? Everyone's going. What will people do when they find out it's true? People think it's strange. Does that make me a stranger? When they find out that my best friend, you know it, born in the manger, and, and there's this idea today that, that, that we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
will not fit. And that's okay. There's this idea today that says, you know what, we're, we're, we're going to be freaks. It's okay. John the Baptist clearly was, and he calls and directs attention where our attention needs to be. Thirdly and finally, the message is completely unique. There is nothing else like this. There is no other religion, faith, ism in the world. The gospel is completely unique. Mark's account of John the Baptist's message is very, very brief. The focus is entirely, not a lot of background, the focus is entirely on the mighty one. And the message is what? Repent and be forgiven because there is one coming who is unlike any other. What I find is interesting here, and there's this fleshly element, a human element, John the Baptist had followers. People liked being around him. And he had crowds and popularity. He had a booming, powerful voice. And yet he is shouting, not, not me, don't look at me, don't watch me, don't listen to me, because after me comes one who is mightier than I, so much so that I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. What's interesting, we say that's kind of like in Jewish culture, you don't touch someone else's shoes, you don't touch someone else's feet. It's a sign of what, it's dirty down there. You don't do that. John the Baptist is contrasting his lowly ministry with the superiority of the coming Messiah. He's saying, what I do, it's natural. What he is going to do is supernatural. He says, I can get you wet, but only he can make you clean. In a sense, he's saying, I I can tell you of your need to be healed, but only He can actually heal you. I can speak of the fulfillment of God's promise. He, He is the complete fulfillment of God's promise. John the Baptist is saying what? The same thing that you and I need to hear today. We have to give focus to this one. We have to stop being so concerned about a, an election that takes place over a year from now, what our Halloween costume is going to look like, how our, how, whatever the worries are, we focus on the one who bursts on the scene with a floods of a purifying, purging presence of God Himself from His very incarnation. His birth in an obscure manger to his entire ministry in a sin-drenched, but yet what, objecting world. From his incarnation to his crucifixion. Where there's this one that we focus on that took our punishment. Took the place that you and I deserve. That paid our debt. That died on the cross. Forgave us our sins and gives us hope to get up. Through his what? Through his resurrection, defeating death. Defeating death and rising from the dead so that you and I, what, can do the same and walk in the newness of life. To his ascension on the hilltop with what? This crowd of, of staring, speechless, and to be perfectly honest, they are scared to death followers. To what? to the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, giving us 
power, His power that indwells us, that fills us, gives us the ability to live and to love and to serve and to give and to speak truth to those who need it. See, that's, that's what Jesus did. That's what, what Jesus is about. The gospel brings healing. It can rescue you and restore you into a right relationship and right fellowship. So, so we see this. as This kind of sets the stage for where we are going. Two things quickly in closing. We love God by living in, in light of the hope, by living every day in light of the hope that exists in the message of the gospel. That's how we do this. We show our obedience, we show our adoration by living every day in light of the hope that exists in the message of the gospel. We love people by showing them the hope. Live different. Live holy. Say no to yourself. We love people by showing them the hope that flows from the hope of the gospel. We see in this message the ability to fulfill the mission that God has called us to. Move off of this. We might as well go home right now. We might as well lock the doors and turn off the lights if you move from this. The only way to fulfill the mission of loving God and loving people is to look and live in hope through the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Father, for your message. Guide us, use us, strengthen us, empower us. Give us the ability to repent, to turn from. Give us the ability to keep our eyes on you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with us, please, as we close.